0: The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, open your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4. And I have a bit of a confession at the beginning of our study tonight, and that is that I know that we're not going to get where we need to go. I also know that that's okay because we're going to do Deuteronomy 4, and next week, we're going to come back and do Deuteronomy 4, versus, Excuse me, Deuteronomy 4, 4. We're going to come back next week and add verses to verse 4. So we're going to study verse 4 tonight, but next week, we're going to study it in the context of the, the verses that follow it. But it's got such dense and rich theological implications that it would be a mistake for us to hurry past this great section known to all Israel as the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord Yahweh is our God. The Lord or Yahweh is one. Theology matters. Said another way, theology matters a lot. Said another way, there's no part of your thinking more important than your theology. And every person is a theologian. Each one of you tonight are theologians, not in philosophical musings, not in conversations, as much as right here, right now, at every moment of every day, in every circumstance, you are a theologian. Everything you do is a reflection of your theology, Everything you say is a reflection of your theology. Everything you eat and wear, every place you play and way you play, is a reflection of your theological convictions. Everything about you expresses your theology. The question is not if you have a theology, or if you are a theologian, the question really is this, from where does your theology come? Where does your theology find its roots? What do you believe about the world? You know, some people call the way we think our worldview. I understand that's the way we view the world, but when we say worldview, what we're really saying are, is, this is my theological disposition. This is the way my understanding of God Almighty impacts my understanding of literally everything around me. Every issue is a theological issue. Every issue. Every problem is really a theological problem. Every decision is really a theological decision. And if you're a Christian, your theology is turned up on full all the time. You say, "I'm not sure that I'm following. I'm not sure that I really believe that." Jesus Christ said, or Paul said about Jesus Christ, rather, that he is to have first place in in everything, meaning he comes to bear in everything we do. Everything in the Greek language means everything. So, if he is to have first place in everything, as a Christian, what implications does that have in our life? How we drive, where we drive, what we wear, everything reflects what we believe about God. Moses understood this. Moses understood this very clearly. Moses understood this very carefully. When you consider the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, um, it, that's known as the Pentateuch. It's known as the Law. So when you read about the Law in the rest of the Old Testament, it points back to these first five books. Moses has two main themes over and over and over throughout Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These two main themes uh, are, are explicit and they're implicit. They're they're fully on display in a narrative or in a section of law giving, and they're also implied in every section. Those two themes are this who God is and what God expects. Who is God? Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? That's a good question. It's a great question. Now, unfortunately, he answered it wrong, but Moses had an answer. Who is Yahweh that we should obey him? And secondly, what does God expect? If you'll remember way back, perhaps you were here. Maybe I'll read it again in the next few weeks. Of That ancient Near Eastern prayer, remember that poor soul that when we began Deuteronomy, he's saying, oh God who I know or do not know, oh oh, God is who I know or do not know, oh God who I may know or may not know, over and over and over, he had no idea. And then he goes on to say, if I've offended you this way, please forgive me. If I've offended you that way, please forgive me. I don't know what I've done, I don't know if I've done anything, over and over and over. It's just terribly repetitive. God is not like that. Moses tells us, here's who God is, and here's exactly what he expects, which is an amazing grace. The fact that we don't have to get up in the morning and wonder, I wonder what God wants me to do today. I wonder how he wants me to act. I wonder how I am to please him. I wonder if I'm accepted by him. I wonder if I'm, if he's in a bad mood or having a bad day. Moses says, no, I'm going to tell you who God is. And I'm going to tell you exactly what he expects. That's what Genesis through Deuteronomy is fundamentally about. The locus of who God is was expressed in an odd place and in an odd way. Um, Moses is in Egypt, as you know, and he's in Egypt under Pharaoh, who had forgotten Joseph, as you know, in the opening uh, sections of Exodus. He rises to prominence. Uh, he is uh, um, remarkably uh, given away by his mother, and the Ten Commandments doesn't show this, the movie, but then his mother is actually hired back by the princess to actually come and raise Moses. Moses always knew he was a Hebrew. He didn't figure it out one day with a blanket or however the movie explains it. As he grew up, though, and as he was figuring out his way and understanding who he was. He heard over and over and over, no doubt from his mother, no doubt from his friends who were Hebrews. What's God's name? It's a strange thing to ask, isn't it? It wouldn't be a strange thing to ask if you had a God who you did not exactly know about specifically, but you knew that he was the creator and that he was Involved and he had created your people, but the Egyptians had a God for everything and they all had names very specific names. Doesn't it strike you as interesting when, when Moses has his encounter with God on the mountain and he, he's commissioned to go back to the people? Remember what he says? Um, they're going to know what your name is. W- what's your name? Now, a name in the ancient Near East meant way more than a name means today. We, we go through the baby books, and we say, this name sounds good with my last name, or this name sounds bad, or we, we knew a guy who we didn't like with a name that, 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 that's attractive to one of our, 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 our friends, or as in our case, there's my wife loved a name, and I knew a guy in high school who had that name, and my kid was not going to be named that, kid, that guy's name. No way. I won't say that name because I think we have some guys in here named that. I don't hold you accountable for your name. Your parents did that to you, so names are just choices here. Names actually carry significance and meaning. They were well thought out. God also understands the the, the form and the format of a name. We talked about that in, this in our study of John. To proclaim the name of the Lord doesn't mean just to tell people his signature. It means that you're explaining his character. A name represents all that you are. And we understand a little bit of this by simply thinking of someone right now. If you think about the people around you, the second that name comes into your mind, what you know about them is filtered and either stains or encourages or acknowledges your thought of that person by the mere mention of their name. So Moses is going to carry the name of God back. Now the reason I'm talking about that is that comes to bear here in Deuteronomy chapter six, and the reason is God's name is used twice in this verse. God's name is uh, the, the scholar, Hebrew callers, scholars called it the ineffable or unspeakable tetra four grammaton letters, the unspeakable four letters, or the ineffable tetragrammaton YHWH. So the Hebrew letters, yod, hey, waw, hey. The Hebrew language has no vowels, so um, they were supplied later in history. No one knew exactly how that was pronounced. The Jews to this day are superstitious. I was reading a Jewish commentary on this passage this week, and even there, they won't even say God. It's G-D because they don't want to profane the name of the Lord. They were so superstitious about this name. The best that we can do in putting the letters to this name would be something like Yahweh or Yahweh. So if you see or hear uh, the discussion of Yahweh, that's the proper name that God gave to Moses and it's an interesting name because it's, it's a verbal form. What's your name, God? And God says, my name is I Am. Have you ever known anybody whose name was a, Noun and a verb together. I guess some of the endings, you know, running horse or something, but that's not how that we we, uh, uh, we communicate with each other today. What is your name, God? My name is Yahweh. I, I am. I am the eternal present tense. Read that exegetically in uh, Isaiah and in Revelation. I was, I am and I will be. I am the eternal present tense. God is transcendent over and involved with time. I don't think any Egyptian God could stand up to that name. What's your God's name? He is. Remember Jesus? He's arrested in John 19. And he says, I am. And the soldiers bowled over from the power of simply that name. He didn't just claim to be God. He said, God's name is my name. In this verse in chapter 6, the fourth verse, we find God explaining that his name is associated and attached to who he is and his name is associated and attached to what he expects. So you find out much of who he is in chapter 6 verse 4 and then immediately following in verse 5 you begin to hear what he expects. It's kind of a cliff notes version of everything Moses has said in the previous four chapters. These two themes by the way should dominate a Christian's mind if I can jump over Malachi and land in Matthew for a second. Who God is in Christ. In the gospel. What God expects because of Christ in our sanctification should occupy our mind all the time. That's all theological decisions made in the spur of the moment and deliberately for the future. Well, Moses, remember, he's standing across the Jordan. He can't go across the Jordan. He can't go to the promised land. Chapter four, he says, Lord, please let me go. God says, no. So he's given his final. Commissioning. He's given his theological sermons, set of sermons, to the, the new generation as they go and inherit the promised land. They're going to get the promise that was made. Just a little high altitude, Dan Block, uh, Old Testament scholar and a, and a very dear friend of mine, he says this, Deuteronomy commentary. The significance of Deuteronomy cannot scarcely be overstated, or overestimated rather. Inasmuch as this book offers the most systematic presentation of theological truth in the entire Old Testament. Did you hear that? Listen to that again. Deuteronomy offers the most systematic presentation of theological truth in the entire Old Testament. We may compare it to its, to, uh, its place to that of Romans since it's in, uh, in the New Testament. Moreover, since Deuteronomy reviews so much of Israel's historical experience of God's grace as recounted in Genesis through Numbers, a comparison might be made with John, or may, uh, uh, and that may be more appropriate. Just as John wrote his gospel after several decades of reflection on the death and resurrection of Jesus, so Moses preaches the sermons in Deuteronomy after almost four decades of reflection on the significance of the Exodus and God's covenant with Israel. Thus, like the Gospel of John, the book of Deuteronomy functions as a theological manifesto, calling on Israel to respond to God's grace with unreserved loyalty and love. End quote. That paragraph summarizes why Deuteronomy 6 4 is so important. As I said, this is probably the most important verse to a young Jew who's heading toward Bar Mitzvah. Hear, O Israel. Now, if you read down through chapter six, you'll notice this paragraph is just saturated. It's dominated by a series of staccato imperatives. An imperative is telling telling, second person, telling us what to do. In verse four, hear. Verse five, love. Verse seven, teach. Verse eight, bind and tie. Verse nine, write. Verse 12, watch. Verse 13, fear. Verse 17, keep. Verse 18, do. Verse 21, say. Now all of these implications and applications are built on theology. Let's go back to the the high altitude again. It's all given to tell us who God is and what he expects. Now obviously if he's giving us a command that's telling us exactly what he expects, this chapter is just dense, saturated with commands with imperatives. Verse four, then, is the launching point of the entire rest of the book. This is where Moses really starts preaching. Up until this point, it's been basically review. First four chapters were historical review. Chapter five was uh, the Ten Commandments. Now in chapter six, as my grandmom used to say, he gets in their kitchen He really dials it in. He pulls them in close and says, I want to tell you exactly, because of who God is, what he expects and what you should do about it. So verse four is that launching point of the section with a simple yet complicated statement about Yahweh, about God. And if we're bouncing through here, and I say the Lord, or I say Yahweh, know that it's important to know that that's the name that's being used here, God's personal name. There are other names that Moses uses. He uses Elohim, uh, which is God the creator, the the almighty, the sovereign one. He uses Adonai, which is the the master, the Lord, the the sovereign, the suzerain. He also uses this, if you look in your Bible, most of them have, it's uh, in uh, all caps, Even the lowercase letters are in capitals. When you see that designation, that means it's the word Yahweh. It's God's personal name. And I know preacher friends of mine who will not even read the word Lord. They say Yahweh because they want people to know this is not a general word for God. This is not a created word for God. This is not even a master word for God. This is the name for God that specifically talks of his covenant and personal commitment he made to the nation of Israel. It's his signature. Now we come to the text, and this is some of the most interesting Hebrew in the entire Old Testament. Hear, O Israel. Very simple. The word hear is uh, the, the, the designation in Hebrew, the Hebrew word shema. That's where we get the word shema. Hear, listen. And so all of Israel's catechistic uh, um, uh, theology where they're catechizing their, their young people is based on that word. Hear, O Israel, listen. Then he says this. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. That's what the New American Standard says. Let me, uh, I've I, I, done some research this week on the, the best Hebrew scholars I know and the way they've translated these four words in Hebrew. There are four simple words that, that have, uh, and two of them are the same word, Yahweh. Um, it's Yahweh Elohimu, Yahweh Echad. Four simple words. Here's how many ways it can legitimately be translated. Yahweh, Hero O oh Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh, is one. Hear, O Israel. Yahweh, our God, is one. Yahweh. Hear, O Israel. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is unique. Hear, O Israel. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh alone. Now, there, there's a phrase that you might find in commentaries that's really important now. It's called the semantic domain of a word. A semantic domain means uh, you ever looked up a word and the, there's like a paragraph of meanings under it? It can mean this, that, or the other. Um, that, that's the semantic domain. It can mean a, mean a lot of things. Love has one of the strongest semantic domains in English, right? I mean, is, is it the same thing for me to say, I love Daisy, my dog? And I love Kim, my wife. I hope not. There is a domain of meaning between those. I love Krispy Kreme donuts and I love my sons. Well, that may be close, but anyway. And the point is, these, these, these two words that are translated, uh, well, Yahweh is used twice, um, Elohinu and Echad are, are, are interesting. Uh, echad especially is interesting. It can mean one, alone, unique. Possessive, solo. This verse has primarily been used by theologians to promote monotheism. And I would not argue with the promotion of monotheism from this verse. It's obviously in the semantic domain of Echad to mean one. God is one. Well, within the semantic domain, absolutely within the meaning. Certainly theologically true. But isn't it interesting that, look back at chapter 4, verse 35 for a moment, that God through Moses has already made that point in chapter 4, 35. To you, it was shown that you might know that the Lord, Yahweh, he is God and there is no other besides him. That's monotheism, Right? If he's the only God, there can't be a pantheism of gods. Look also down at verse 39. Know therefore today and take it in your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is, how many? No other so, yes, we believe in monotheism, one God. Yes, we believe in one and three, three in one a Trinity, as fully explained in the New Testament. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Most, when they turn to this passage, take the, the translation of Echad to say that this is about oneness. It certainly has those implications, no question. But can I suggest that there's more to it than just simply teaching about monotheism? Please don't misunderstand. Yes, it teaches and implies that there is one God. It affirms what chapter 4 says, that there is indeed one God. But I think to limit that Hebrew word to just monotheistic implication and application is to cheat what's going on in this passage. There is so much more richly flowing out of this. I favor the translation that reads like this Yahweh is our God. Yahweh, the one and only alone. I think one of the primary applications of the, remember our big phrase, semantic domain of this word has to do with God's uniqueness and God's exclusivity. Why? What's the next thing Moses says? Based on the Shema, you shall then... Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you shall be on your heart. Do you see what flows right after that? Yes, it's monotheistic, but it's more than that. He's saying God is God uniquely, exclusively alone. He's the only one who can demand the full allegiance of our heart. This is the Old Testament equivalent of Jesus Christ coming to have first place in what? Everything. Because God is one, and because God is God alone, and as we saw in 4, there is no other Then, because of that, because he is the only true and living God, and even better than that, because he's our God, first phrase, then we are to love him with all our heart, soul, and might. The question that the Israelites were going to wrestle with throughout the rest of their history, and especially nowhere is this put on fuller fuller display than, um, it's it's just hard to even talk about, than in Israel's wickedest king, uh, Ahab, and his oh-so-encouraging wife, Jezebel, that's tongue-in-cheek, um, there's a reason that, that uh, the spirit of Jezebel is mentioned as a wicked influence in, in the book of Revelation. When Ahab and Jezebel are in their reign of terror against Yahweh and for Baal, I mean, is this just mind-numbing? The king of Israel is actually promoting idolic worship. idolatrous worship? During that time, Elijah... And following him, Elisha, both of their message over and over and over is Yahweh is God alone. And Yahweh is the one to be worshipped exclusively. No Baal, no idol, no anything else. You go into Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, over and over they are pounding the people. Judgment is coming. The Assyrians are coming, Hosea said. Uh, The Babylonians are coming, Isaiah said. Uh, uh, Ezekiel said, Jeremiah said, they're coming because you have traded in your worship and allegiance exclusively to Yahweh, to God, and you've kind of kept an eye on him, but you've also served idols. So the point of what I'm trying to say here is that this is a cry and a call, not only that God is one. One. Yes, it's there, but it's more than that. This is a cry and call that God is God alone. Therefore, you should love him and love him alone. Turn over to Mark chapter 12 for a moment. Same thing is taught in not only Mark 12, but also in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus is tangoing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees again. They're trying to trap him. They're asking him questions that they think if he answers, we can certainly trap him. And this is a very clever trap. It's a very interesting trap. And Jesus' answer is the Shema. Shema. One of the scribes, verse 28, let's go there. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing. He's I think he's just finished with the Pharisees. He then decimates the Sadducees in this group. These two groups are hanging around him. One of the scribes then, and by scribe there, that's the same word as a seminary student, a theology professor, someone who's studying theology. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing. That he had answered them well, Jesus was pretty sharp, this guy assumed. Asked him himself, Teacher, what commandment is the first of all, the preeminent one, the foremost, the most important? If you were to look at all 630 something laws and all 637 commands, which is the one that stands out as the most important? Now, think about what he's saying. It's not a bad question. Now, I think that the, he's asking here to trap him because anything Jesus would have said, he would have said, well, what about this one? What about that one? But this is a really good spiritual question. Is there a commandment that rises out and not, doesn't trump or supersede them all, but actually puts its arms around all that's the greatest and foremost of all the commandments? I, I just love the first two words of verse 29. Jesus answered, Jesus answered. When they had questions about the Bible, the old scrolls, the Old Testament, and when they had questions about theology, Jesus never said, well, um, I don't know. Let me get back to you. He wrote this book. He answers his, the foremost is, and then he goes to the Shema. Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is unique, one Lord. And it goes to verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And he adds one and with all your strength. Was he adding to scripture? Well, of course he was. He's God. He can I love verse 31. Before they can even say, well, what about this? He says, you didn't ask about the second one, but I'm gonna answer the second one too. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. I love verse 32. The scribe said to him, right, teacher. You have truly stated that he is one and there is no one besides him. And to love him with all the heart, soul, understanding with all the strength the loved one's neighbor himself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. I love verse 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered him intelligently, he said to him, you, my friend, are not far from salvation, from the kingdom of God. Isn't it great, verse 34, at the end? And after that, no one would venture to ask him Any more questions? This is significant with our understanding of Deuteronomy. Remember, this is just preliminary. This is a Bible study tonight. We're going to get to the full sermon on verses 4 through 6 next week. Jesus affirmed the Shema as the greatest commandment. It's very interesting that when he affirms the Shema, he doesn't just go to the commandment part. He also says that the theology that feeds that commandment has to be in mind. The reason that you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, the reason he can demand that kind of allegiance is that he is our God. And he demands allegiance to him and him alone. Yes, he's monotheistic. Yes, he's unique. The foundation then for worship is theological truth about God. One of the interesting word studies we're going to come to here in about two chapters in Deuteronomy is that the word for worship in the Hebrew and the word for serve slash obey is the same word. So the foundation for worship and service and obedience is the true bedrock fundamental reality of who God is. Let's go back to our announcement. So are you interested in theology? Do you want to know what God is like? Back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll come back to Matthew, uh, Matthew 22 and Mark 12 again in the coming weeks. But again, based on that, he says, here's who God is, and because of that here, Love, teach, bind, write, watch, fear, keep, do, say. Because of who God is, I can tell you what to do. You want to know one of, the, one, of the, um, one of the most threatening ways of thinking to our sanctification is? Is when we begin to obey out of just simple, raw duty, then attaching it to the person of God. And you guys know that we all do it. You know we've all done it. Having discussion with a couple of our sons one time, we were talking about why they said no, they didn't say these words, or why they didn't, when people say, why, 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 do you, why don't you cuss? Why do you do this? Why do you not do that? Why don't you go here? Why do you do that? How do you answer that question? The answer is not, well, I just think it's wrong. The answer is not, well, I think it's a bad idea. The, the answer is not, well, because you do it. I mean, the what answer do you give? Obedience and service to the Lord should solicit questions about why to do that and where that came from. Look down the page in Deuteronomy chapter 6. When your sons, verse 20, when your sons ask you in time, saying, what do these testimonies and statutes and judgments mean, which the Lord our God commanded you? That's the same Hebrew construction as why should I do this? Why am I in this? Why does God want so much from me? Why is He demanding all oh, my, all oh, my, all oh, my, all oh, my? Why? Why would a son ask that? Because it had been lived in front of his eyes and taught to his brain. The point is that living for God should be provocative. It provokes a response. And that response is not just, well, I do this because I'm a Christian. I do this because I love God. No, no. I do this because of who God is and who he is. is so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Powerful. It's so majestic. It's so overwhelming. How can I do anything but give absolute exclusive allegiance to him? That's why we do what we do. Moses is setting this whole dynamic up of the why, 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 why. It is a great thing to say why. You now, my wife and I are parents. I have been more than a few times... Less than sanctified in my response to my children saying, Why? I have been less than sanctified in my own response to the question of obedience and asked why. It's silly. We've talked about it before, but my wife and I went through a time. We're in California. We had upstairs, downstairs, and I I just didn't understand why. My shoes needed to sleep in the closet. I would take them off late at night. They were by the coffee table. I was going to put them on the next morning. i don't understand why it was important to her that I take them upstairs and put them in the closet. I still don't understand why that's so important, but you know what? Turn the key we were kind of it was kind of a running joke, and Kim just said kind of offhand at one time. Honey, it doesn't matter why. If you love me, you'll do that because it means something to me. And it clicked. That's right. That's right, isn't it? Look at the next verse. Because of who God is, you shall love the Lord your God. You love him. Now, we're going to get into the love next week. What does that mean? It's not an emotional, ooey, gooey, rich and chewy feeling you have about God and you sing songs like, God is my girlfriend. That's not what this means. Love here has teeth. It has traction. It has grip. It has direction. And it involves, as we'll see next week, all of who you are. There is no part of our being that should not be dominated by love for God. With that turn over for a moment to first john uh, we have to jump the testament here the battle in israel was going to be from this point forward idolatry right I mean, don't you read that over and over and over? Read the, the Elijah-Elisha cycle. So idolatry, idolatry, idolatry. Read Isaiah. God's going to come and judge you. Cyrus is going to come because you've been idolatrous. Jeremiah, God's going to come. Babylon's going to come uh, and take us in judgment because of our idolatry. Hosea, God's going to come to the Northern Tim tribes, take us away uh, because of our idolatry. Over and over and over. What, what's the big deal with idolatry? Idolatry was not just carving a stone, setting up a wooden statue, and bowing down three times a day. Idolatry was giving affection to anything created that ought to be given to God, and God, what's the word, alone. One of the strangest places, strangest rather, um, most awkward places transitions in all the Bible is at the end of First John. It's really odd until you understand the Shema. At the end of First John in 1 John 5, um, let's get some momentum here. Verse 13. These things, he's finishing his, his letter, John is, these things I've written to you who believe in the name, there's our concept again, that's who God is, the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. First John is given so that you can have assurance. It's a good book to study. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him uh, give life to those who commit the sin not leading to death. There is, though, a sin leading to death. We'll study that sometime. Probably related to taking the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, because that's where it says people die from this. I do not say that he should make such a request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there's a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him. Now, that doesn't mean he's perfect, means he pursues his sin uh, without the mitigating force of the Holy Spirit, mitigating conviction of the Holy Spirit, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. To me, please underline this in your Bible when the Jehovah's Witnesses come and knock on your door. There is no more explicit reference in the Bible to Jesus' deity than this verse. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and that we are in Him who is true, namely, His Son, Jesus Christ. Next phrase, this is the true God and eternal life. Is that clear? The law of nearest antecedent that has to refer to Jesus, the true and eternal life Now, I read all that to get to the last verse. After this great theology, after this great exhortation, after this phenomenal implication and application, then he says, little children, guard yourself from idols. And this turns commentators green with wondering what this is about. Some people think it was added, it was redacted, it was added later, this wasn't really a part of what John said in the beginning, because it doesn't fit. Can I suggest absolutely it fits? This is the essence of Of the greatest commandment. Little children, guard yourself. If you want your affection, verse 20, to the one who is true, his son, Jesus Christ, the eternal life, the true and living God, then you have to do one thing with all your heart. Guard yourself from idols. What is an idol? It's anything we love More than God. What is an idol? It's anything we will sacrifice to enjoy more than God. What is an idol? Anything we will pay for instead of using our resources for God other than his glory. Let's go full circle. Chapter 5 of Deuteronomy gives the Ten Commandments. The first two commandments are in essence the Shema. What's the first commandment? What's the first commandment? Do You remember? Everyone turn back to Deuteronomy chapter five. It has to do with exclusive allegiance to God. Deuteronomy chapter five. I know you're saying, well, do you want me to give you the, the, the formulation in Exodus or the formulation in Deuteronomy? That's what you were thinking. I appreciate that. By the way, he begins chapter five with um, Moses summoned all Israel. Instead of them, what's the word? Shema. Hear, O Israel. He talks about the covenant. Um, You shall have, verse seven, no other gods before me. Commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol or likeness of what is in heaven above on the earth beneath or in the water underneath the earth, you shall not worship them or serve them. Remember, I told you those were cousin words? For I, the Lord, am your God. I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. It's idolatry. Here's what's very interesting, though. Okay, you gave me these commandments, Lord. Remember Deuteronomy. Your son comes and says, why? What are these things? Verse six, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of slavery. Who God is and what has God, done, God has done leads us to exclusive allegiance to giving him all of who we are. So, back to the beginning. Theology matters. If the person of God regulates and motivates everything in our obedience, how important is it to know who God is? What God's like, what God's commanded. If God has not only told us who he is, but what he expects, not only is that a grace, you you do understand, right, that we are all going to be judged one day by what's in here it's a really good idea to know what that standard is. Hear, love, teach, bind, tie, write, watch, fear, keep, do, say. Why? Because God is our God. We didn't even get to that point. By the way, I got the page three. Um, because of who he is. Because of what he's done. Without spiritualizing or allegorizing, can I say that the exact parallel for us on this side of the New Testament is Colossians one eighteen? Because of who he is, he's forgiven sins. Because of, uh, because of who he is, he's the head of the body of the church. He's the head of creation. He's the creator himself. Because of what he's done, he's forgiven sin. He's paid for it with his blood. Because of that, he, Jesus Christ, is to have first place in everything. That's the Shema. That's exclusive allegiance to the God-man in flesh, Jesus Christ. Theology matters. Folks, It matters a lot. And if we don't shape our theology, the world and the devil will. No one is passive. I had a couple of conversations with some folks this morning. At the end of the sermon, I was talking a little bit about quiet times and spending time with the Lord and devotions. um, I think we we assume more than we should that each other are doing that and and, and secondly, we, we probably are less than honest when we struggle with that. But let me just say, let's, let's pretend this is fourth grade Sunday school again, okay? If you are not consistently reading the word of God, your faith will lapse, your perspective will lapse struggle and your frustration with obedience will come to a head because you won't know why you're fighting the flesh. Why am I saying no to the things that I want to do and I want to think, why why am I doing this? Because our mind hasn't been informed by the precious nature of God that motivates us to do that. So this is another Read Your Bible More sermon. Do you? Will you? We, we have all of God's revelation. I still This just mind-numbing that we live when we do and have this. And I have it here on this thing. And I have a stack of them in my office. I have one by my, by, by my bed. I, I've got one downstairs. They're everywhere. I just wonder if those who are, you know what? Conspiring with Tyndale to get the English Bible into people's lives and hands. At peril of death. I wonder my shame at a conversation with those men and women who would see my access to God's word. I think they would probably say, how can you do anything How can you do anything else all day but hold and read and treasure that precious book? Pray to God that familiarity does not breed contempt when it comes to this. So we didn't get to our outline. We didn't even get to our proposition. Just background tonight on the Lord is our God. He is one and he is ours, he is unique, and he is exclusively to be worshiped. He is the Lord alone. So what does it mean to do verse five? Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We'll study that next week, Next week, but let me give you a hint. Jesus exposited this text for us and tells us exactly what it means. Father, give us a desire to see who you are and what you expect. I'm so grateful for this book. I'm so grateful for this church that honors this book, that treasures the word of God, that understands this as the Thessalonians do, not the word of men, but the word of God. We want to Research, study, love, and abide by this book because it tells us who you are and who you are, Father, who you are is so precious that when thought about deeply, it does regulate our lives. You said, hear, O Israel, and could equally, equally say to us, hear, O church. Who you are, what you expect, as we saw last week, the incredible blessing of honoring and obeying your nature and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.